Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody this morning, especially those of you who are guests with us. Hopefully in that video you got a sense for who we are. Um, If you are a guest with us, we would love to connect with you. And the easiest way to do that is if you text the word welcome to 817-755-1668. It's the number on the screen behind me. Um, Or you can find that number on the little sticker on the seat back in front of you. Not going to do anything weird. You'll probably just get an email from me tomorrow um, thanking you for your visit and then a text later this week. But we would love to find out how to serve you and your families. And um, so if you hear anything this morning and you have questions about what you hear, would love to um, answer those questions on your way out this morning, so I'll be available to you. Um, and if you are a guest with us and I didn't meet you on your way in, my name is Bill and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. And so just excited to have you um, gathered together. I see as I look around the room, lots of family sitting together today. And so just glad that you guys are here. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, thanks for the love that you've extended to us. Father, we recognize today that while we were lost in our sin, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, who laid down his life for us so that by faith in him we could know you. Father, we recognize the truth of the gospel that when we could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything. And so, Father, we recognize today our dependence upon you and all that you've done for us. And I I pray, Father, as we spend a few minutes in your word that you would help us to understand a little bit of this life that you have given to us. And um, Father, just be at work in our hearts and lives. Encourage us today through the work of your spirit who lives in us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You've all met one. It was your friend's mom growing up who made you take your shoes off before you ever walked in the house because she didn't want her carpet to get dirty. It's the person whose knickknacks you can't ever touch because they're displayed in just the right order, in just the right way, at just the right angle. It's the high school girl who gets a 95 on a test and can't believe that she missed something on that test and is worried about what that's going to do for her academic standing within the class. It's the kid who spends way too much time getting ready in the morning, trying to make sure his hair is just right, all in the right place. The engineer who goes over his calculations over and over and over and over again, making sure that everything is right, there can be no mistakes. It's the life of a perfectionist. Or if you are one, what you would say is the life of one who has perfectionistic tendencies, And I wonder without, you don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us struggle with perfectionist tendencies from time to time. I do. Several years ago, I took for the very first time this personality test called the DISC. Some of you might be familiar with it. You might have had to do it in your job at some point. But when I took it the first time, and I've taken it many times over the years for different reasons, but the first time that I took it, I realized I have this very conflicted personality. See, on one hand, I'm a high C, which stands for conscientious, and that's where the perfectionist tendencies will come out. But at the same time, I'm also a high D, which stands for dominance, and so Part of that personality profile is the, this need to just get things done. So I have this need to just get things done while at the same time this fear in the back of my mind that it's not going to get done right. And so I'll tell you how it manifested itself at different points in my life. So 
especially when I was in college and seminary, had to write papers or do a project. I would get that paper done well in advance, but never turn it in until the moment that it was due for fear that I might want to change something, even though I never once did. You know, on the surface, it might seem like being a perfectionist is a really good thing. And there are good qualities in people that are perfectionists. I mean, they, they are people that you can trust to get things done well. So if you give them a task, they're going to carry it out to the best of their ability. So if it gets done, it's going to get done well. They can be trusted with a lot of things. Yet at the same time, there are downsides to being a perfectionist too. For some, they can be procrastinators. The reason being, they're just so afraid that they might get something wrong. They just wait till the last minute to do it. Perfectionists often have a fear of failure, and they're plagued by that fear of failure to the point that they won't try new things because they're afraid they're not going to be good at that new thing that they do. Perfectionism is actually even tied to this new phenomena that is being referred to as the imposter syndrome. It has nothing to do with how other people view you. It has everything to do with how you view yourself. And imposter syndrome is just kind of the idea that where you doubt your own qualifications and abilities and you assume that whatever it is that you do, there are, everybody else who does that same thing does it better than you do. There's just so much fear wrapped up in it. Like if people actually knew who you were, they would see that you're nothing more than a fraud. And I wonder for those of us who struggle with perfectionistic tendencies, how many of us might say that we also struggle with Christian imposter syndrome? That deep down inside, we feel sometimes like we're nothing more than frauds. Several years ago, I was at a national conference for pastors, and a guy who I know was speaking at this conference. He pastors a church out in San Francisco, California. He actually started the church, and so he grew the church from basically nothing, and at the time, they were running close to 1,000 people, doing incredible things in their community. And so everybody on the outside would look at what he was doing and say he was incredibly successful. I mean, this was the reason that he was invited to speak at this national conference. And so he walked up on the stage, and as he began to talk, he said, hey, I just have to share something with you. He said, as I stand here today, I recognize that there are a lot of other people who would do a better job than I can do. And he said, I often face this on, when I stand on a stage like this one, or even at the one in my own church, in the back of my mind, I wonder, what am I doing here? And it might seem really strange for a pastor, especially at a, a conference, to say that. But as he was talking in the first few minutes of that message that day, I really could relate to a lot of what he was saying. Because I can't tell you the number of times where maybe I, I have, was going to talk about parenting on a given Sunday, or maybe even just applying whatever we were talking about as parents and as I was working through the message that week, only to realize that, I mean, like the day before, I'd yelled at my kids for no good reason. 
or how many times I've wanted to talk about the importance of spending time daily with God only to realize like, and, and think to myself, like, how can I share this? Because this last week I missed some of that concentrated time alone with God that I know I need to have. Or, or when I, I've needed to challenge us to, to be bold in sharing our faith and stepping into spiritual conversations only to realize, well, this last week I missed an opportunity. You see, what can happen is that we develop a profile for an A-plus Christian. So we think about what an A-plus Christian does and, and who they are, and so we develop this profile that may be something like this. They spend hours every day with God. They never have any doubts or fears. They never get angry or never selfish Talk about Jesus 24 hours a day and have given $20 to every homeless person that they've ever come into contact with, never once wondering in their mind, what is this person going to do with that money? Because after all, it's just between them and God. And then when we don't measure up to that profile, we feel like frauds. And those of us who struggle with perfectionist tendencies, maybe we're getting a 95 every single time but yet we feel like failures. But that profile of the perfect Christian that we create is nothing more than what we create. We don't have to be perfect. That's why there's this thing called grace, the goodness of God given to people that do not deserve it. And I want you to know, I don't think we have to have perfect faith. What I want to do for a few minutes this morning is talk about the profile of perfectly imperfect faith. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. It's going to be on the screen when I read it here in just a minute. Um, if you don't have a Bible, also if you've got your smartphone, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. But this section of scripture that we're looking at today is the account of two miracle stories that are woven together. It's the raising of a little girl from the dead and the healing of a woman. And we don't have time to talk about this today, but I want you to know this on the front end. What happened that day was incredibly significant culturally. For Jesus, as a rabbi, to acknowledge the woman in the story, we'll read the story in just a second, and to raise this little girl from the dead was highly significant because rabbis were told, don't waste your time with women and with children. And so what happens in this story should certainly shape our view of women and how we interact with them and relate to them and all of those kinds of things, their importance of faith. Again, we don't have time to talk about that today. That's not our focus, but I think that's really significant, so I want to point that out to you. But let me read this story, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And when Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When the, 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And the woman saw that she was not hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called her, Child, arise, and her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. You know, as we read through that story, on one level we could look at it and see that these stories are two incredible examples of faith. But I think when we stop and actually look at the details of what's happening, what we see is not perfect faith, but these are two stories of perfectly imperfect faith. And I'm going to show you why. I can only begin to imagine what Jairus was going through. It says he had one daughter who was 12 years of old, and she was sick to the point of death. I mean, she was dying. And we don't read any more details about her situation, so we don't know if this is something that had been going on for a long time and just slowly progressed, or if it was something that came on all of a sudden. But what we see is his desperation, because when Jesus showed up, he got down on his knees and begged Jesus to come to his house. We don't read this in the text necessarily, but based on what we know about Jairus, I don't believe that Jesus was his first option to go to for help. It was more likely the last option. Because what we read about Jairus is that he was a ruler of the synagogue, the synagogue being the local place of worship in a Jewish community. And so as the, the, the leader of the synagogue, though he wasn't a, a priest by trade, he was a highly respected person in the community. He was the one who was responsible for organizing and arranging the services every week that included readings from the Hebrew scripture as well as the sermons who were given. So he was a man of faith. And so what I see as I think about Jairus is I see one who had so many obstacles to overcome in order to go to Jesus for help. Some of it may have just been internal pressure. I mean, here he was. As he saw himself, he was supposed to be a man of faith who could take care of his family. And now he finds himself in this situation where he literally can do nothing to help his daughter. But there was likely external pressure too. How would other people view Jairus as a result of him going to Jesus for help? Because at this point, the religious leaders are very skeptical of Jesus. There is an antagonistic relationship that is already developed. And so what would they think about him going to Jesus? I mean, he was likely friends with religious leaders and priests. And maybe he'd gone to them first. Maybe he hadn't. What would they think about this? But what we find is someone who was so desperate for help. 
He was willing to do anything to help his daughter. So whatever those obstacles were, they were not insurmountable. And that's why he went to Jesus. And so what I see about perfectly imperfect faith is that it grows out of moments of desperation. We see it with Jairus. We also see it with this woman who had this discharge of blood. What we read about her is that she had had this problem with menstrual bleeding for 12 years. This was incredibly significant. I'm sure it was medically creating all kinds of problems, but at the same time, it also was socially. So as a result of her health issues, she was unclean, meaning that she wasn't able to participate in any religious ceremonies or services that entire time. It also meant that she had very limited interaction with other people because her uncleanness could make somebody else unclean as well. And again, what we find in her life is desperation. It says that she spent her entire life savings going to different doctors, trying to find different remedies. I mean, she'd gone to everybody and nothing worked. Not some concoction of some of this mixed with a little bit of that. It didn't help. She had gone to all the doctors, spent all of her money, and now there was nowhere else to turn except to go to Jesus. Perfectly imperfect faith grows out of moments of desperation. I know in our perfectionist tendencies, especially those of us who've been around church for a long time, we know that, we, that when something even small comes into our lives, the first place that we are supposed to go is take it to Jesus. And probably we should. But we don't need perfect faith. It sure seems like perfectly imperfect faith is just fine. So let me ask you, where are you desperate for help today? In your marriage? With struggling child? In your finances? Let me encourage you to take it to Jesus. But I know in your minds, you're a little bit guilty because you're thinking, I should have done this a long time ago. And the reason that you're not now is because you feel guilty because you haven't done it before, recognizing that you should have done it before, but now you're not. And so now in the moments of desperation that you're facing, you feel like, man, it's a little bit self-serving to ask Jesus to intervene in my life at this point. Listen, don't let your ideas of perfect faith hold you back from doing what God is asking you to do, and that is to take whatever it is that's weighing you down, take it to him so that he can carry that burden for you. Perfectly imperfect faith grows out of moments of desperation. Second thing that I see in this passage about perfectly imperfect faith is that it may start out private and timid before it's ever made public. Again, in our perfectionist tendencies, I get it, we think to ourselves, I ought to step into spiritual conversations on a daily basis with boldness and courage. Maybe. But perfectly imperfect faith sometimes starts out private and timid, but is then made public. Go back to the story of the woman. 
in, her, in the midst of her desperation, she had found no one that could give her help. And so as Jesus is making his way to the house of Jairus, the, the crowd is gathered around him, pressing in on him, and she sneaks through the crowd and touches the hem of his garment. She is thinking, well, maybe I can just touch him and something will happen and no one will know about it. On some level, honestly, her plan makes sense to me. Because what she was dealing with was incredibly private. I mean, what would it have been like if she went to Jesus with boldness and said, Jesus, I want you to heal me. And he says, okay, tell me about your problem. Then she has to explain this in front of all of these people that she did not know. Something that she was incredibly embarrassed over. But it was Jesus who wanted to make sure that her faith became public. But notice, it wasn't that her faith had to be public for her to be healed. It was her private faith that healed her. In an instant, as soon as she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she was healed. And she could have slipped away into the crowd and no one would have known the difference. Except for Jesus stopped. And he said, hey, somebody touched me. Crowd denied it. Peter's like, Jesus, literally, there's like hundreds of people that are pushing up against us. We're never going to find this person. But then here she came, recognizing that no one else was going to say that they had touched him, that she needed to step forward. And she was timid, shy, scared of what was going to happen, but she then explained her story. interesting to me, you might, want to, you might ask the question, well, why did her faith have to become public? Because it was her private faith that healed her, but it was her public faith that welcomed her back into the community, and it was her public faith that would then be used to make a difference in the lives of other people. So for her to be welcomed back into the community, recognizing that her period of uncleanness was over, that she was clean, she could be welcomed back into the community, back into relationships again. Her faith couldn't remain private. It had to become public. And then it was that public testimony that could be used to make a difference in the lives of other people as well. So perfectly imperfect faith. It might start out private and timid before it becomes public. And so let me ask you this for some of you Does your faith need to become public? Is there somebody in your life, maybe a friend or a relative, that you need to have a spiritual conversation with? Maybe for some of you, you need to take that next step and become baptized. Baptism, as we practice it, is that thing that declares publicly that we are followers of Christ. It's our identification with him as his public follower. Perfectly imperfect faith might might start out as private before it becomes public. Last thing I want you to see about perfectly imperfect faith is that it just keeps following even when it seems like all hope is lost. Perfectly imperfect faith just keeps following. As Jesus and the disciples along with the crowd, continued to make their way to Jesus. He stopped to take care of this woman. He acknowledged her. He healed her. And in those moments, somebody from Jairus' house comes and says, it's too late. She's gone. The report is there's no need to bother the teacher any longer. 
And Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. Just believe. Did you notice this detail too? Notice that Jairus never says another word in that passage. He never says, oh, Jesus, listen, I'm not afraid. I know you can raise her from the dead. He doesn't say that. But what he does do is he just keeps following. Now, was, were there doubts and fears? If he was normal, there was a lot. But he just kept following. As Jesus made his way into the room where the little girl's body was laying, Jairus and his wife followed Jesus. It's also interesting, too, that Peter, James, and John, the three closest of Jesus' followers, also entered that room as well. They were the only witnesses to this event. I think this is highly significant in light of what was getting ready to happen to the disciples and how things were going to be hard for them. And they, there would be times where they would want to give up hope, but they needed to have that same kind of faith. It's perfectly imperfect faith in the midst of doubts and fears that just keeps following. Because you never know what God's going to do. Got to be careful with this, though. Just because God can do something in a given situation doesn't guarantee that he will do something. Interesting to think about this, because Jesus raising this little girl from the dead was an incredible miracle. But it was only temporary. She still died. We don't know when or at what age or how or the circumstances, but she still died. And I want you to know, following Jesus now, he can do some incredible things in our lives, and we may experience incredible things in our lives. But even if he doesn't, Following Jesus now will lead us to experience life the way that it was meant to be at some point in the future. Following Jesus here will lead to a life the way that it was meant to be when we get there, and that is our ultimate hope. So whatever you're going through right now, Whatever you're struggling with, it may be really significant in your life. I mean, it's just absolutely weighing you down. Listen, here's my encouragement. Just keep following. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep following after him because he is our hope. And I know so often we create this profile of a perfect Christian who has perfect faith and we never live up to that standard. But I don't know that we need to be perfect. Now, do we need to grow? Yes. But we don't have to have perfect faith. Because I, as I see in these two stories, it sure seems to me like perfectly imperfect faith is just fine. It's a faith that grows out of those moments where we're in desperate need for the work of God in our lives. It sometimes does start out private and timid, and maybe we're afraid to share things but at some point, we need to take that step forward and let our faith become public. And it's perfectly imperfect faith that in the midst of significant challenges in our lives where we refuse to give up, not really sure what's happening, maybe when all hope seems lost, we just keep 
following Jesus because we recognize he is the only one who can fix anything that we're going through. And that's our hope. And that's the profile of perfectly imperfect faith. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray that you know as we've talked this morning that you would strip us of our preconceived ideas of what we should be. Because God, I recognize that while you call us to follow after you and you want us to grow in our faith, sometimes our expectations maybe of ourselves are higher than what you see for us. And so Father, strip us of the guilt that we have because we aren't perfect. But help us to accept your grace. And so Father, thanks for being good to us in spite of our faults and failings. Thanks for being at work in our lives in spite of our doubts and our fears. And I pray, Father, that you would help us all to just continue to follow after you and take one step at a time, one day at a time. So, Father, for those that are here who are struggling in moments of desperation, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Let them know through the work of your Spirit that it's okay to go to you. Thanks for carrying our burdens for us. Thanks for never leaving us alone, but continuing to pour out your love on us. And I pray that you would do that today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, let's take-